0: Hello, pod listeners. Welcome to Wooden Teeth. My name is Jake Williams. Today on the pod, we have John Auerbach, who has had a 30-year career in public health with posts that have included leading the Boston Health Commission, serving as the commissioner of public health for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and working as an associate director at the CDC. Now, John is president and CEO of Trust for America's Health, which is an organization dedicated to promoting sound public health policy, and making disease prevention a national priority. In our chat, we're gonna talk about public health's evolution, Trust for America's Health's role, and especially about a new report they've released called Promoting Health and Cost Control, How States Can Improve Community Health and Wellbeing Through Policy Change. I think the report is particularly useful because often the challenges we face feel super broad and systemic and it's hard to know where to even start. Sometimes, for example, I think we can feel like we have to solve poverty in America in order to make real progress on public health and other challenges. So while eradicating poverty would indeed be a gigantic step forward, we probably can't do that by passing one bill. So this report provides specific state-level policy ideas backed by science that can help us make steady progress. Before we get to that conversation, I want to make one last plug for our presence at South by Southwest this year. Come visit us at our exhibition space on March 9th and 10th within the Palmer Event Center as part of the South by Southwest Wellness Expo. Come stop by, say hi, and get free stuff if you'll be in Austin. And if you won't be there, then follow us on Twitter or Facebook to see what we get up to. All right, let's get to my discussion with John Powerback. John Auerbach, welcome. Thank you very much. So I'd like to begin with a story that was within this new report from the Trust for America's Health to kind of help frame up the report's purpose. It goes like this. Mary Johnson sat in her doctor's office at the end of her physical. She listened patiently as her doctor carefully reviewed her current health status, which included the fact that she was 20 pounds overweight, pre-diabetic, and asthmatic. The doctor reviewed the importance of a healthful diet and physical activity, as well as avoiding the environmental triggers for her asthma. Mary liked her doctor and appreciated the doctor's concerns, but she knew it would be difficult to make the necessary changes to her behavior. There were few local stores that, sh- that sold fresh fruits or vegetables in her community, and besides, she was on a tight budget, and the most affordable foods weren't the ones her doctor recommended. What's more she didn't feel safe exercising in her neighborhood. The YWCA was a few miles away, but there wasn't an easy way to get there by mass transit, and she already knew the main trigger for her asthma, her apartment building, which had a leaky roof, which resulted in mold and mildew. The landlord, however, wasn't inclined to fix the problem, and Mary couldn't afford to move. So how does this report aim to help people like Mary Johnson?
1: Well, I would start by saying there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that are more or less in the same situation as Ms. Johnson, which is to say they're benefiting from uh, receiving medical care, good medical care, and they're hearing from their doctors that uh, they should be paying attention to uh, their behavior, exercising more, eating better food, and the like but they they can't do it and the reason they can't do it is it's really largely beyond their control because the conditions in their lives just make it too difficult if not impossible they disproportionately tend to be people who are low income and um and often um people of color although certainly there are are many uh white mary johnsons as well they are disproportionately people in rural areas, although there are many Mary Johnson's in urban areas, they want to be healthier. They're hearing the messages about how important that is, but the conditions in their lives just make it too difficult. Our report focuses on what can be done to change those
0: conditions. Thinking about those conditions, uh, there's another excerpt from the report that demonstrates the effects of income inequality and poverty. It reads, Americans in the top 1% of households by income live 10 to 15 years longer than those in the bottom 1%. These differences are concerning. There are about 39.7 million people living in poverty in the U.S. and they have important implications for public health and healthcare expenditures. Do you think that we can make significant progress on bridging this gap through mitigative public health policy alone? Or do public health interests have to wade into the territory of income inequality and related economic policy?
1: I think it's possible to make incremental changes in the conditions of people's lives, which uh, can be beneficial for their health. Just for example, we know that if you stop smoking, you you will get healthier you will be less likely to develop disease and die prematurely. And there are policies that we know work, pricing policies and smoke-free policies. So, yes, there are definitely steps we can take that are the more traditional public health uh, policy implementation efforts, and they will make a difference in terms of health. But if we think more broadly about how do we close the gap between those who, are low income and as a result of their income levels are at elevated risk for a range of different health problems. We have to think more broadly than the traditional public health approaches and consider ways of addressing the social and economic issues as well.
0: So let's talk about the the process and the actual recommendations in this report. How did you go about finding these specific policy proposals that you're recommending?
1: Well, we began by setting the criteria about what kind of policies we were looking for. Number one, we were looking for those that could be implemented at the state level. We wanted only policies where there was solid um, defensible evidence that health improve as a result of the policies. We wanted those that had a positive impact on cost, and we wanted those that were feasible, weren't so aspirational, it was unlikely that states would ever adopt them. And then finally, we wanted we wanted policies that represented a range of different approaches. We didn't want them all based in one area, say tobacco. So we began by looking at the evidence. And to do that, we searched 1,500 policies that have been studied over the last... A period of time. We looked at multiple sources to do that, but we literally did the hard work of reading those studies and categorizing them um, in various ways and then applying that criteria that I mentioned. Uh, that resulted in the 13 strongest policies that uh, met all the the various criteria.
0: So the policies are summarized in six goals. I'll read them real quick. Goal one, support the connections between health and learning. Goal two, employ harm reduction strategies to prevent substance misuse deaths and related diseases. Goal three, promote healthy behavior. Goal four, promote active living and connectedness. Goal five, ensure safe, healthy, and affordable housing for all. Goal six, create opportunities for economic well-being. So I'm just going to jump right in here and I'm, I, my eyes are, are zeroing in on promote healthy behavior because I see it uh, relates to smoke-free policies and tobacco pricing strategies as well as alcohol pricing strategies. But thinking first about tobacco, my impression in speaking to people about, for example, what you know I do in my day job at Healthier Colorado um, is that People have a low opinion of of tobacco use, and they recognize it as harmful to people. But there's also an impression that this tobacco problem from a public health perspective is kind of solved. Like, not that many people smoke anymore, and it's not that big a problem. But that's not exactly the case, is it?
1: It it isn't the case. Um, We uh, still see a a fairly uh, significant percentage of the population that uh, smokes, It has dropped over the last several years, but it is it's far from being eliminated. Um, And we also see that the uh, tobacco industry is very resourceful. So as we've seen a reduction in smoking cigarettes, we've seen an increase in the use of other uh, tobacco products. Some of these are marketed as uh, chewables. Um, or flavored uh, cigarettes that are sold sometimes um, uh, no, in, a, in a manner known as onesies, where you can just buy a single uh, hot, very, very flavored uh, cigarette. Um, and we're seeing those are being marketed to uh, adolescents. Uh, and then, of course, um, e-cigarettes are rapidly growing in terms of their usage. And many, many of these cigarettes uh, have nicotine Or tobacco-related products um, um, associated with them. So, um, so there, we're the traditional uh, cigarette usage is still around, maybe decreasing, but uh, other tobacco products are uh, growing.
0: And what are some of the policies that you're recommending in this report to deal with this public health issue? Sure.
1: Well, one of the most effective
0: approaches to reducing
1: Tobacco use is to raise the taxes, uh, raise the price. It's a pricing strategy, but the strategy involves taxation. Um, and and we have seen the, the definitive evidence around the country that when you make a significant increase in terms of the cigarette tax rate, smoking goes down almost immediately, and it can go down uh, at a statistically significant rate. That said, one of the things that we've looked at in the country is that how high that tax is makes all the difference. And uh, surprisingly, even though uh, Colorado is a is a, a state which is um, you know relatively overall a healthy state, it has a uh, quite a low cigarette tax. Um, it's in the bottom uh, 14 states um, in terms of the um, the cigarette tax rate itself. It's only 84 cents. Whereas uh, eight states, for example, have more than three dollars of tax, and 28 states have between a dollar and uh, two dollars ninety-nine cents tax. So, so um, we, we we're highlighting that Colorado. It's great that it has that tax, but cigarette usage and tobacco usage
0: would drop much faster if that uh, if there was a reexamination of that rate. And. How about uh, harm reduction strategies to prevent substance misuse, deaths, and related diseases? You know, I know in the, the most recent uh, figures regarding life expectancy and um, reasons for life expectancy decline in America, a lot of it has to do with um, addiction and substance use. Um, how do? Wh- what are some specific examples within harm reduction that you're recommending in the report?
1: Well, in the report, we focus on um, one of the areas that has um, been studied the most, um, and that is syringe access programs. Now, syringe access programs are not programs that reduce substance use; they're programs that reduce infectious disease associated with needle sharing. Um, so, uh, but that, but in um, as as a policy that addresses infectious disease. They are very, um, uh, they've been very effective. And the two different approaches that states have employed are syringe access through needle exchange programs and syringe access through um, over-the-counter sales without a prescription. Uh, Syringe access um, through needle exchange has been what's been studied the most frequently and, and consistently that shows Uh, that it is very effective in terms of reducing HIV and hepatitis
0: transmission. I'm looking at all these goals and all the um, specific recommendations, and they all make sense to me. Um, But what would you say are are the biggest barriers to advancing this agenda at the state level?
1: I think that one of the barriers is that a number of these policies are not ones that people would uh, immediately recognize as uh, beneficial for health. What we've learned through our analysis is that, um, that we need to examine those policies that change the conditions in people's lives. We talked earlier about Mrs. Johnson, and, and that means focusing on such things as the quality of housing and security of housing on the income level. And, and so when we look at policies such as Earned income tax credit, paid sick leave, family leave. Uh, those may be thought of as um, uh, worth looking at for other reasons, but not necessarily for health. Uh, in this report, we're very clearly saying there's an added benefit to the other reasons to look at those policies, and that's the clear benefit to uh, promoting the health and well being of the public.
0: You've been in public health for a long time. By saying long time, I don't mean to age you, but you've had a long and distinguished career in public health. Um, How has the scope of public health uh, changed during the course of your career?
1: Um, It's changed in a number of different ways. Um, One of the ways uh, is related to what we were just talking about, and that is uh, public health is, is much more aware of the social determinants of health. Um, Historically, for understandable reasons, we we looked a lot at uh, the immediate uh, causes of uh, ill health, uh, whether that be smoking or obesity or an infectious disease. But um, those are all important to work on um, themselves, but at the same time, public health more and more wants to look at the upstream or underlying causes of those. A second area where public health has changed is it has a greater emphasis on working on the issue of equity. And by equity, what I mean is uh, in guaranteeing that there's a fair and just opportunity for optimal health among all members of the public. And what we realized increasingly is that uh, uh, certain elements, segments of the population I uh, don't have that fair and just opportunity for good health, and that has resulted in um, preventable deaths, illness and injury. And and so public health needs to pay particular attention to to closing that gap. Um, I think uh, in addition to that, public health now, as, con- as contrasted with, say, a few decades ago, is um, increasingly focused on the issue of policy uh we for decades were the safety net provider we ran clinics that std clinics and tv clinics and immunization clinics um, and those were um, provided for free uh, by the public health sector because we we Assume there would be large segments of the population that had no health insurance and therefore wouldn't have a doctor to provide those services. With the expansion of insurance under the ACA, there's been less and less of a need for public health to provide those safety net services. And and that's allowed us to put more of our attention on um, policy and uh, working with different sectors of society, transportation, economic development, um, schools, um, to jointly consider how it's possible to uh, create conditions that are uh, health-promoting in those different sectors.
0: Thinking about that expanded scope that you referenced, especially when it comes to social determinants, and bringing it back to the report. Um, I'm especially struck by goal six, which is create opportunities for economic well-being because it includes a number of policy recommendations that um, regular folks outside of public health perhaps wouldn't immediately recognize as public health issues like fair hiring protections and the earned income tax credit. Can you talk a bit about those proposals and how they relate to public health?
1: Sure. Well, I'll give you um, a concrete example that uh, occurred when i was uh, the commissioner of public health in boston uh, a number of years ago uh, it's related to paid sick leave we found that there was a uh, a serious outbreak of hepatitis a uh, within the city and many people were very sick and being hospitalized and when we tracked down the cause of the hepatitis a outbreak it was a particular fast food restaurant where Uh, The workers uh, were sick, but they were coming to work every day. They were coming to work every day because they didn't have sick leave and they uh, therefore wouldn't get paid if they didn't come to work. And they were worried about being able to pay rent and put food on the table for their families. Uh, And and so we began to understand that unless businesses offered sick leave, we would have a very difficult time as public health people in controlling infectious disease outbreaks um, where Um, where you'd want someone with a contagious disease to stay away from work. So that um, kind of experience has been repeated around the country. We've seen uh, that you have to have paid sick leave if you want to prevent uh, disease outbreaks. With with regard to something like earned income tax credits, um, what we've seen in the research is that earned income tax credit increases the um, Usable income of a family and that the studies have shown that if you improve The income levels of low-income families. They actually get healthier. They're more likely to um, To eat healthy foods for example, they're even less likely to smoke And and so paying attention to those income levels um, through a policy like during income tax credit uh, ends up uh, repeatedly improving the health of the public.
0: Were there surprises for you in this report in terms of what your team identified as uh, the most effective public policies to improve health in America? Uh,
1: I would say that we were surprised that there was such definitive evidence about the economic opportunity policies that we were just discussing. We, We thought that perhaps... There would be evidence that those were policies that uh, seemed um, uh, beneficial in terms of people's economic well-being, but we didn't think we'd see uh, indications of clear improvement in health. Uh, similarly, with housing, we, we didn't expect that we would find um, housing policies that uh, had a strong connection with health, and and so um, when those um, clearly were identified as we researched them and looked at the evidence. Uh, we thought it was important to, to bring that in, uh, information forward and to uh, provide um, the science um, behind those recommendations to policymakers in other states that were trying to identify um, a portfolio of approaches that would be in the best interest of the public.
0: And tell me about the Trust for America's Health, Um I personally know a lot about your organization, but um, I think others could really benefit from knowing what you all do. We're
1: a relatively unusual organization. We're an organi- a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based in Washington, d c. We're about twenty years old. Um, we focus entirely on uh, the promotion of policies and programs that uh, improve the health and well-being of the American people. What makes us unusual is that we're, um, we have a very strict policy about our, our funding. We don't take government money. We don't take corporate money. We're only funded by philanthropies, which give us a lot of independence in, in what we can say and do so we can become truly an independent voice that has no potential for a vested interest. We also don't have members, uh, a number of health organizations have members. They represent, uh, perhaps the health commissioners or the planning departments. Uh, And and as such, they have to um, confer with their members who may or may not be influenced by the political environment in their state. We we don't have that. We're we're simply able to look at the science and look objectively at uh, policies and approaches.
0: This report focuses on policy action at the state level, but I know you're also concerned about what goes on at the federal level. And thinking about health care versus public health, health care advocates have really looked to the states uh, during the Trump administration as um, a level on which progress could be made because progress has been really stifled at the federal level and really been limited to essentially defense of the ACA. What does the dynamic look like when it comes to public health? on state-level action versus federal-level action and what's been possible during our current presidential administration?
1: Well, we would uh, see that there is a greater importance um, to, uh, for the work that's being done at the state level and the local level uh, for health Um, local and state initiatives have always been what we might refer to as the laboratory for innovation and change with regard to public health policy. Um, But that's even more the case now uh, because at the federal level, there's been a scaling back of uh, funding for uh, public health programs and there's been uh, less innovation than there's been in the past. Uh, So we definitely think states and, and locals play a critical role. That said, the federal government still is important and um, and it still is uh, playing a role in terms of uh, important health policy issues. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control uh, does the extremely important work, and fortunately, uh, its programs have been, uh, for the most part, maintained at uh, the um, the at, at a level that has allowed them to, um, uh, make a difference. Um, uh, they also are increasingly working on issues like opioids, which, uh, are a threat to the public. And, and so there too, the, the federal initiatives coming from, uh, CDC on public health, uh, matter a good deal. Uh, you know, finally, I would say just recently, um, Uh, members of the uh, Trump administration uh, from the health agencies uh, within the federal government uh, announced uh, a very ambitious and admirable goal of um, uh, eliminating uh, HIV transmission in the United States and doing so by targeting um, the counties where transmission is the heaviest. Now, that's just been announced it has there. hasn't been uh, any identification of resources to devote to that. Um, and and so it's it's not clear how it will be implemented, but uh, it, it certainly um, is something worth paying a lot of attention to. And if it's possible to uh, with the, the budget, as it moves through the federal process to uh, devote resources to that effort at the federal level, that could be a very important transformative public health approach.
0: Do you think that voters and policymakers have to have a better understanding of public health, especially when it comes to connecting the dots between all these proposed policies and its effects on the population in order for this policy agenda to be effectively advanced? And if so, how do we promote that understanding?
1: Definitely believe that um, we need to increase the awareness among policymakers and the, the public about the value of public health. Uh, public health is often taken for granted and, and only recognized as important in the middle of an emergency, a public health emergency response to a weather-related emergency or, or an infectious disease outbreak. But day in, day out, public health is responsible for uh, protecting the health and well-being of the public through ensuring that there's access to clean water or clean air or or smoking policies that uh, uh, protect children um so so increasing the awareness about public health is is important and um and we're hoping that as there are debates that resurface as we enter uh, uh, the 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 debates in the upcoming presidential season, that in addition to looking at healthcare policies, like the increased focus on whether there should be a Medicare for all approach, that in addition to thinking about healthcare, very important, there's um, a close linkage to thinking about public health. Those two need to be thought of in, in the same breath, not as two different approaches, but as Uh, a part of an overall approach to promoting health. You can do some of it with clinical care, and you you can do a great deal of it with public health. The more that those two sectors and um, two overall approaches uh, work together, I think the the better we'll be as a country.
0: The report's called Promoting Health and Cost Control, How States Can Improve Community Health and Well-Being Through Policy Change. You can check it out at the Trust for America's Health website. John, thank you for the time.
1: Thank you. My pleasure
0: talking with you. So I had to do that one from my basement at home as I was home with sick kids. John wasn't in my basement, he was back at his office in DC, but I was unexpectedly in my basement with my dog and pillows set up around a substandard microphone to try to improve sound quality, so I apologize that the audio was a little below our standard as I didn't get to use the fancy equipment that we usually use. I'm looking forward to our next series of interviews uh, for which we will use our fancy equipment down in Austin. Tune in next week to hear the first one.